This is Michael Osterlink. Welcome to our radio, where we explore individual and social transformation through collaborative action. Today's show is brought to you by Resilience Parenting, Raising Resilient Children in an Era of Detachment and Dependence, a great book by Chris and Holly Santillo. You can learn more about their book and global travels at fivebackpacks.family. Today's guest is Mark Devine, a retired Navy SEAL commander, founder of SEALFIT, Unbeatable Mind Academy, and Kokoro Yoga, also my boss. He is also the <laughs> author of many books, including Way of the Seal, awesome. Unbeatable Mind, Kokoro Yoga, Eight Weeks of Seal Fit, yeah. <laughs> and today we're going to be talking about his newest book, Staring Down the Wolf, Seven Leadership Commitments that Forge Elite Teams. How you doing, Mark? I'm doing great, Michael. Good to see you again. Good to I'm see you. I'm not your boss. We're teammates. <laughs> cool. <laughs> boss is such an, an old school kind of concept, I think, isn't it? Uh, actually, that's a, that's a great segue into our conversation. <laughs> old school and new school. <laughs> yeah, indeed. You know, so um, the Chinese character. The school for... of Mo. The school of Mo. That's what you're <laughs> school. <laughs> I like that. You can join me at the school of Mo. <laughs> the school of Mo. Um, the Chinese character for crisis is also the, the character for opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so I like to kind of contextualize our conversation about your new book, Staring Down the Wolf, in what's happening kind of at the global, the local, national, and global levels. And it's, uh, you know, an interesting time to be alive between COVID-19, which is mm -hmm. a global phenomenon, the killing of George Floyd, which is also now a global phenomenon. Mm -hmm. both the protests here domestically and, and the riots, as well as protests globally, which is pretty amazing. We have global warming. We have China rising, where the U.S. is seemingly pulling away from international agreements. China's rising, um, very active in Africa, South America, growing, growing in Europe as well. We have Russia being very active with digital influence operations in Europe, Eastern and Western Europe exponential technologies. I mean, it just seems like, you know, there's a mix of crisis and opportunities. And so I'd like to, you know, get your sense of what fifth plateau leaders following your book need to start thinking about in terms of how we deal with what we're facing in the world, locally, nationally, and globally. And, you know, species level and knowing you beyond the species level too. Mm-hmm. Well, easy, easy the question. The answer, the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, first, it's probably important to start with why I wrote the book. Excellent. You know, this idea that we're kind of entering a rapid change, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous era is really, um, you know, what spurred me to write the book, even though I will also say that that's a, a perception. It really is. The perception is that things are more VUCA or volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous because we have access to information that is unparalleled and coming at us faster and faster. And, you know, microblogging platforms like Twitter and social media platforms and, you know, YouTube and, and videos and and it's global and more and more people are tapping in and coming online, you know, with another three to 4 billion soon to be online with ubiquitous 5G, you know, 
uh, internet enabled smartphones that'll be given to them for free, you know, and they'll be blockchain empowered and whatnot. And all this is making things seem to be like they're speeding up. Reality is <laughs> there really is no such thing as time. It's a construct of the human brain to begin with. So nothing's actually speeding up. It's just a perception. It's just a, it's just a mental, some mental agitation. Uh, changes in the temporal world has always been constant. And um, just because there's more people, it seems like it's happening faster. It's just that there's more things happening because there's more people causing things to happen. Because in the temporal material realm, cause and effect actually does have a play on things, right? Even though it doesn't in the more spiritual perspective. So the book is basically coming from that position of, yes, there is this perception things are speeding up because there's more actors coming online able to access these technologies you referenced and it creates uh it turns something that was complicated into something that's complex when, when when it's complicated it's understandable so the industrial age was complicated but it was understandable that's why a bureaucratic organization could could make sense of it and actually seemingly control for brute birds of time in the human spectrum anyways what's going on in the world and now things are complex, which are not easy to understand or even possible to understand by an individual. So it re requires a, a different form of leadership. And that is the leadership where the spontaneous wisdom of the team is what's required to solve a problem that's not understandable by the linear bureaucratic kind of structure of the industrial age. And it just so happens that we have figured out a solution you and I and, and the team at Unbeatable on how to train an individual and a team to access their intuition and to, to develop spontaneous solutions to really complicated or I'm sure say complex challenges that no single individual, especially with the training of the past, could ever do on their own. And so the new paradigm of the leader is the team is the leader. And the leader is there to serve the team support the team but it's also his most primary responsibility is to be a teammate and not some you know autocratic or top-down or dogmatic or you know visionary or servant leader or whatever where it's me and then everybody else it's we the leader comes to the team and, and it's, it creates the we and the leader's job is to get the heck out of the way and often you know in many cases but also you know some of the very strategic things like to set, you know, make sure the vision is clear and, and the individuals are aligned with that vision to make sure there's a constant drumbeat of discussion around vision and principles and um, what's more, what's important to the team members and taking care of their uh, lives and, and what's important, like a team, like what's going on in the world right now with, with COVID and, and you mentioned with the, um, you know, with the, the racial, um, injustices as well as conflict you know if, you, if you're not having those conversations as a leader with your team and, and airing issues and, and challenges that the teammates are having and it's just all business then you're failing as a leader right so obviously these things impact us at a deep level so but how does a leader become capable of leading at this level now in the book i you know our version of um transpersonal psychology developmental stages we call the plateaus and the fifth plateau is the you know the opening of the integral 
uh, teal level or world-centric perspective. And so we make the, I make the claim that we can evolve ourselves very quickly to this world-centric perspective through leadership developmental model training, a developmental path. And the developmental path that we lay out is the model of integration, integrated training and development, integrating and training physically, mentally, emotionally, intuitionally, and spiritually, and deliberately, and most importantly, in that emotional realm, working very hard to eradicate the emotional shadow that um, is a affliction of all humans that arises from early childhood gaps, whether that gap be trauma or just um, gap in uh, emotional development or attachment disorder or a gap in understanding or, you know, a gap that leads to a kind of racial insensitivity or even just white privilege, right? So all those things, you know, lead to the biases and the, and the ruts and the shadow elements that you and I call background of obviousness. And so what happens is, you know, a leader comes to the table and starts growing into the leadership roles and they're really good at cognitive learning because we master that in the west we're really good at um learning the strategy and tactics of leading but virtually no work is done at the emotional intuitive and or spiritual leadership level and so then you have these one-dimensional leaders and when that happens there's a, a lack of authenticity leadership is, is looked at or approached as a strategy and tactic as opposed to being uh, as a quality of one's essence, essential nature of wholeness, of authentic, you know, being where I show up and what you see is what you get and it's acknowledged and there's great trust that develops because that I'm showing up as trustworthy because I'm not trying to be per perfect. I'm not trying to be the absolute, you know, autocratic leader. I'm not trying to be anything besides myself who is a caring human being who as a great concern for all sentient beings. And wow, you know, what a, that sounds grandly utopian, but it's very achievable. <laughs> so when that trust develops, guess what? That trustworthiness breeds trust and that becomes a practice or commitment for the team to continue to work on that trans transparency and the humility and the follow through that require or that engenders even deeper levels of trust. And so you have this deepening of trust, or you could almost look like an upward spiral of trust until it's almost like insurm, you know, insurmountably hard to breach. And that provides the foundation for an excellent team, for an elite team that can conquer the, you know, challenges that we face in the world. And it leads to great respect, which is something that's often missing in the workplace. Res lack of respect um, leads to bias right leads to more bias leads to insensitivity and you know some of the issues we're seeing happening out at a global level so trust and respect when those two and the respect is a big part of respect is integrity you know the integrity to to really have the crucial conversations around the things that are important to be you know extraordinarily thoughtful with how you uh, what you say making sure what you say lands appropriate so you take responsibility for, for how you say it and how it lands um, compassionate, you know, communications, as well as your actions, because those are, you know, your loudest form of communication. 
Let me ask you a question. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let me ask you a question about that. Two questions, actually. So would you say that a fifth plateau leader following this kind of uh, way of operating the world, showing up this way, they can play different roles. The roles are flexible. They adapt the roles based on the situations they find themselves in. But from what I hear you saying, it also requires the teammates to understand that they are playing roles. The roles mm -hmm. serve a certain purpose, but it, but that also requires some development within the team. So it's not like you have just a developed leader. Because right. I heard you saying too that the, you know the leader is part of the team. He doesn't stand outside of the team. So how do you then also develop the team to open up to play roles, sure. have identities, yeah. engage with each other in these these ways that you're discussing? That's a great insight. And yes, uh, but in order for the, the leader to even engage with the team at that level where the team becomes the developmental uh, growth petri dish, as well as the lead, you know, the leadership locus of control, then the leader needs to um, evolve to that fifth plateau to where they're open enough and transparent enough and humble enough to be able to enter the team with the first, what I call the first three commitments in the book, courage, trust, and respect. And so the courage, trust, and respect are like prerequisites at the individual level for both leaders and then, and then teammates. But again, it's, I'm, you know, the perspective I have is that the leader has a great capacity, has the greatest capacity to evolve a team either forward or backward, meaning either toward greatness or devolving into you know mediocrity <clears throat> because they're a central organizing you know figure right they're the one that can set the vision and the tone and the organizational structure of the team and how it operates and so they can either unlock vast potential or shut it down so in order for the leader to even have the capacity to bring the developmental um, aspects of the team to unlock its potential the leader first has to be that person like Gandhi said, you got to be the change you want to see in your team. <laughs> right, right, right. So developmentally, there are certain things that we can do every day to develop courage, develop trust, trustworthiness, and develop respectability. And if we do those things, then we tend to show up with courage, trust, and respect and, and get it in return because we get what we put out into the world energetically. We get it in return. So then, you know, back to your question, then once we get to the team, and the team begins to model and work on these things together, that opens up the fourth commitment, which is growth. And so the, I believe, and I think you do share this, and, and more and more people are starting to recognize this, that you know, in the old model, the old paradigm was just to go to work and then you come home. And now, so you got your work role, like you talked about, and, and within work, you're gonna have different roles. And then you've got your home role, you know, father, mother, husband, wife, you know, whatever. And and I'm suggesting that, of course, we're going we're gonna to have those roles, but at the center of those roles is this authentic core, essential nature of you-ness that you understand who that is because you're doing this work. You're staring down the wolf of your you know, emotional shadow. You're showing up, growing up, and cleaning up, like Ken Wilber would say, or growing up, uh, opening up, cleaning up. <laughs> and waking up right. our core work wake up grow up clean up and then sean added open up which is the intuitive ethics so you can show up and so you're not a different person when you put those role uniforms on 
right? You're not also putting a mask on, you're just showing up. Mark, who is the same Mark, you know, the egoic structures that identify as Mark is the same person when he's at work versus when he's at home. And then the workspace, what used to be considered a workspace now becomes your team space, which is radically focused on growth of the individuals of the team. And that means vertical growth, growing their consciousness, their sense of self, their perspectives, their, you know, solidifying their fifth plateau stage of development as a team, whereby they can have a bigger impact on the world because they'll be bringing more power into the equation, more positive energy as well, more thoughtfulness, more integrated decision-making. So, that's the fourth commitment is that recognize that the team is the most powerful mechanism for growth. You spend eight to 12 hours a day engaged with the team. Why not use the team as an opportunity for growth? And so you can, you can use tools like mindfulness and, and breath work and, and crucial conversations and emotional intuiting and shadow work. It all can be, it has a place in the um, work environment or the growth environment. So let me, let me step back to, to your <clears throat> earlier courage. Um, cause you just said something, you said many things are really interesting, but you talked about crucial conversations, emotion development. You know, I, one thing I think is fascinating is that you've re- not reframed, but you broaden the definition of courage. Courage is, is also being emotionally. And I know you don't like the word vulnerable. So transparent, <laughs> transparent. <laughs> open sharing, you know, whatever, however, whatever words you want to use, but courage is leading from the heart in a very open way. However, and I say, however, in, in contrasting the industrial model, HR systems that we have, you know, th- there are limitations legally, culturally, to what people can do inside of a business setting in terms of sharing and challenging one another towards, you know, f- from a courage place, but towards growth. So I would imagine that, you know, we use, we use I, we, and it, that as we transition from the industrial age to the post-industrial age or the information age and people follow your model of, of growth within, a, within any kind of an, uh, institutional setting, that laws, regulations, rules, and just the norms are gonna have to shift completely to, to parallel or model this new way of being in the world. Yeah, for sure. And you'll see new organizational structures evolve that can hold the world-centric, you know, integrated teams. And, and they'll come up around kind of like and in between the industrial age structures, you know, kind of like weeds growing in a, you know, yeah. in a, in a you know, uh, industrialized city. Uh, some will be kind of hidden from view. Some will be more overt. And my view is that more and more people will be attracted as more people enter this consciousness level, more and more people will be attracted to those organizations. And, and then suddenly one day they'll dominate. I mean, not in a, not in a power way, but yeah, I mean, they'll just be the dominant forms of structure. Yeah. Blockchain is a really good example of that, right? It's like most people don't still really don't know what blockchain is, but it's just like, slowly kind of creeping up out of the, you know, out of the wilds. And someday, you know, you're suddenly going to see the old banking industry just like stop. And everyone's going to be working 
through blockchain and mobile transfer of digital currencies and whatever. It's going to be really interesting in decentralization of everything. All the central edifices of the industrial age will be standing kind of naked, like the king with no pants. Like, where'd all the customers go? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and then you'll have some chaos as, you know, the, those cling to power. And maybe we're seeing that beginnings of that start to play out, right? In this current election cycle in the United States and what's, you know, coming now, in the, you know, with these giant edifices of the old industrial age, you know, nation states, you know, conflicting on the global stage, China, US, Russia, you mentioned, who are not operating at a world-centric point of view. They're operating at a very much of an ethnocentric, you know, egocentric even point of view or perspective. And that always leads to clash, right? Any, anything that's operating in the, from the negative energy will, you know, ends up clashing and creating more, you know, negative energy. So we have to, you know, the, the world-centric is able to evolve out of that and bring eradicate that negative energy both in the individual and the organizations and bring positive energy into the world and the environment and, and really heal and solve problems. You know, there, there's a so, saying, yeah, I mean, the bottom line, I was going to say the organizations have to change as the teams change. It'd be very difficult to achieve the, the, the vision and the ideals I set out in the book, staring down the wolf inside, you know, the postal service, <laughs> let's say, <laughs> because of that, structure yeah you know there, there's a saying uh, don't fight the old work to create the new <clears throat> right uh and so what i hear you saying is you know people from the fifth plateau perspective operating from staring down the wolf value system <laughs> right you know are helping to generate the new but as the weed analogy we, we are still dealing with the old the old institutions okay. still exist so how would you recommend a leader who's operating from the fifth plateau in an institution that might even be post-conventional, but still has to operate within a conventional system where mm -hmm. majority of the stakeholders are part of the industrial system? You know, they, they can't not not deal with, them with the old because they're mm -hmm. embedded in those systems. You know, how, how do you recommend people think about dealing with that as they try to transcend the old, but still have to deal with the old too? Yeah. Well, just like we said earlier, first, it begins with yourself. You know, self-mastery precedes the service element. So we work on ourselves and we bring uh, a higher level of um, integration and wholeness into our environment, into our team environment, in that, within that uh, rigid structure. And then, um, you know, I'll use the general standing and the crystals term, a team of teams approach is really effective because in spite of the rigid hierarchical structure of your organization, most work is done in cross-functional teams. And so to bring the growth into the cross-functional teams as opposed to trying to bring it into the rigid structure of the organization writ large. So we have this team of teams that can be very adaptive, you know, uh, very, you know, cross-functional, but also cross-personal, meaning, you know, I might join your team for a project and, and then, it, then I'm not on your team. I'm back on my, this other team. And so you have primary teams and secondary teams. And, and most people sort of operate this way, whether they're aware of it or not, even in the rigid structures, because you got to get work done and, and you can't go at the pace of bureaucracy these days, right? 
so you can apply this thinking about staring down the wolf and wolf and turning your team into a growth team, but make it a growth team of teams that can uh, kind of transcend and operate both outside and within uh, within the boundaries of the rigid hierarchical structure, both legally and bureaucratically. But when it comes to leading the getting things done part of your work, it's operating in a completely different way. And an example of uh, McChrystal, the way he did it, like he had the military ra radically rigid hierarchy to work with in Iraq and Afghanistan. And they were moving at a snail's pace and getting their asses kicked by ISIS. And when he implemented the team of teams approach, which became this kind of cross-functional, very spontaneous, they had, you know, the daily alignment his job basically was to get keep everyone in alignment with the vision and the mission and the boundaries and then let the people closest to the gun closest to the you know the firefights and you know the, the ground level truth make autonomous decisions largely autonomous decisions and that's how that's very growthful as well because you're putting a lot of um, responsibility on the lowest level of the organization and uh, so then everyone becomes a leader and a teammate kind of simultaneously, right? So that's, you know, kind of the way I would look at it. You know, we don't have to throw the baby out with a bathwater or burn down Rome. We have to basically find victory within ourselves first and then recruit or bring it to our team and then have our team operate within the boundaries while also trying to change or soften the structures of the boundaries of where we're operating right now or if you're comfortable and have that entrepreneurial spirit, go, go out and start something on your own or join a more nimble or newer, modern or more modern organization. So, you know, McChrystal's approach worked against the Taliban and, and Al-Qaeda in, in, in um, Afghanistan and anti-coalition forces in Iraq. Have you seen that approach work in the business sector successfully? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. In fact, there's a great book written called Holacracy You've probably seen that or read that. Yeah. Comes out of the integral. Uh, so there's plenty of integral commons type organizations and hol holocratic organizations, and and we even at Unbeatable have implemented more of a team of teams approach, where everyone, you know, we, we've looked at both uh, product at a product level as well as a functional level, and we've identified who's who's on each of those teams and who's the de facto team leader, and then those teams have a lot of um, authority to self-organize and to call on support and resourcing and whatnot. Um, we're in kind of a nascent stage with it, but it's, it's comfortable for us because we're already very transparent. You know, all the, the commitments that I speak to in the book, Staring the Wolf, which by the way, are courage, trust, respect, growth, excellence, which is more about operational excellence, which is built on top of those first four, <laughs> which is more about daily iterative improvement and innovation and curiosity. And then resiliency, which I know is really important for a lot of organizations, that's to be able to do all those, just being able to bring, you know, yourself with courage, trust, respect, growth, and excellence every day for, a, you know, the lifetime of your work in spite of all the challenges you're going to face. And then the final one, which we've already alluded to with McChrystal's talk is alignment. Yeah. You know, that becomes a commitment and, a, to, and also a daily practice to stay aligned with each other, to stay aligned with the vision, to stay aligned with the mission, stay aligned with the values, and also to be aligned enough to know when those are out of alignment with maybe culture, with you know where where you're going. So to align the alignment, <laughs> right, 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 right. And so um, those commitments of staring down the wolf 
tend to allow teams to operate very autonomously, very spontaneously, very intuitively. And these are like, that's, that's the, you know, that's the currency of the future leader teams is, you know, autonomousness, uh, autonomous operations, spontaneous knowingness, intuitive decision-making and making decisions where, you know, the second, third and fourth order consequences are actually not unknowns Mm -hmm. and are thought through with contingency planning. And you're looking for a world centric benefit as opposed to just, let's say lining, you know, the bottom line up, puffing up the bottom line or meeting your, you know, limited you know mission local mission but you know being, doing no harm while you're doing good let's just say another is there a scale that you see that where this would work well versus a scale that it might not work as well because i'm thinking for instance like if you had the opportunity to go into the pentagon and and help them rethink how they do all four branches i guess we have now five branches the space force we also have the Coast Guard. That's um, the one that Steve Carroll is running, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me started. <laughs> you know, because that's that's a huge bureaucracy. It's it's so it's one thing to have special operators on the ground, get, you know, who are given permission through the Crystal's sure, yeah. vision of doing, you know, operating semi free or autonomously, but then you have this huge bureaucracy. So I'm, I'm you know. Is there a scale that this works versus a scale that doesn't? It's a really good question. I think so. And I think it's going to be, it would be challenging to go in and try to change an organization that's that big and that rigid. I think that that can happen at a generational level. Let's just say, you know, a generation of of millennials or or Gen C for COVID, (laughs) let's say Gen C, is really embracing whether they get it from world, you know, getting their world centric mindset and, and their development through unbeatable mind or, or some other model or, or it's just kind of now seeped into society. And, um, and then they enter the military and become leaders. They're going to end up being the transformation agents of those institutions that, that are that big and encrusted, or you're going to see change happen very rapidly through the, a disintegration of those systems if that's what's meant to happen you know what i mean like you saw in like bolshevik russia becoming communist russia or you know what i mean china mm-hmm. becoming communist china with Mao Zedong, and those tend to be very violent type trans transformations because those edifices are just torn down overnight with a lot of negative consequences obviously so i'm not clearly not um saying that that's the approach that i'd like to see and nor do I expect to see that in the West. I expect to see a more gradual transition in some of these, you know, some of these big, old, rigid structures will be severely tested and found to be inadequate, right? And the way that could play out, it would be like if we did have a conflict with China, and yes, we got tremendous weaponry and whatnot, but what if, you know, they were more um, fluid with us in their in our their decision making and more spontaneous and more able to uh, decentralize and i'm not suggesting they will be it might be actually the opposite right right right. because quite frankly those are attributes that the u.s military you know allowed us to really surprise you know in world war ii and also some of the other things 
but you know, sometimes we forget and we become, you know, ossified. <laughs> yeah, we become ossified, and and you know, we can we can be humbled very quickly. So that's what I'm suggesting is that you know, there's there's a humbling of those edifices that then force them to change from within. You're going to see, especially with what's going on with all these riots and and the post-COVID, there's a there's a real awakening. I think there's a definitely an awakening to the fact that whatever world we were living in is not something that we all want to go back to. And so some of the, you know, these, these riots are certainly um, indicative of that, or, or maybe a symptom of that. And you're going to see some gyrations in the political processes, but you know, like we, we, we haven't seen even any remote discussions or movement for change in the political process. You know, if you look at the two candidates being put up by the major parties in the United States, it's like, okay, more of the same. You know, how's that going to help with racial injustice and inequality and, right, some of the global, I mean, some of the major problems. Now, some would say, well, that's the platform that, you know, that the other side has that's not in right now. And I'm like, yeah, not really, right? The platform is is <laughs> is a very dangerous one also right from my from an integral perspective so one like, size okay. fits all yeah right right one yeah. size command fits all. control industrial model right. yeah. peter pan rob the you know yeah peter to pay paul stuff like that. anyways uh, we're going off on a little tangent there but um it's interesting yeah <laughs> at least in my limited brain <laughs> unlimited brain uh you talked about secondary and tertiary uh um, um outcomes of that fifth plateau leaders can be aware of or, or externalities we might call them that, mm -hmm. that when they take decisions and implement plans, they're thinking not just immediate, not even midterm, but also long-term, but also systemic. Can you talk about some of the things that you think fifth plateau leaders would be considering as they take decisions, the different factors or variables that come into play? And I know you're ecologically sensitive, so I'm thinking along those lines as well. Yeah, of course. So I am obviously very sensitive to the spiritual, you know, understanding that we're all, you know, we're all interconnected at a, you know, quantum slash spiritual level. And so what I, you know, the butterfly effect, what I say, do, the decision I make here right now can affect, you know, my friends and fellow humans in, you know, East Africa. So that's one, fifth, that's a fifth plateau perspective that the decisions we make aren't just affecting our company or our team, they're affecting the world. So what could be some of the impact? You know, how can we make sure that we are, you know, be good and do good simultaneously do no harm mm -hmm. as a result of our actions, even if it's unintended. So that, that just that alone begins to cause you to ask different questions, yep. better questions. So, and of course, then you want to look at that from the, through the lens of ecological sustainability, you know, uh, impact on global health, you know, and mother earth, right? connection you know, to mother earth's balance are we are we helping mother earth or the earth become more balanced or less balanced with this decision 
more whole or less whole, right? If you look at the earth as a body or even like a sentient being. And so there's the ecology part of it. Then there's the sensitivity to the oneness of the human race in spite of our many multitudinous of differences, which gets into racism and classism and and inequality versus equality. What does that even mean? And, and is this decision going to lead to more balance in those areas or less balance, more integration or less integration? What's our stand on those things? And so it causes this type of thinking, causes the leadership team at a minimum to think clearly about what they stand for. If they're gonna be world-centric leaders and operate out of that fifth plateau, what do we stand for? And how are our actions going to um, align in integrity with that stand? In a sense, this, you know, even though it sounds complicated, it, it is the simplicity that is found on the other side of complexity. When we think this way, because now we know what we stand for and all of our decisions are done with that grounding, with that stand in, um, you know. I would in, imagine. In our, in our, <laughs> I just brought up your, your oh. chat. I'm like, oh, no, that's, you're, I'm, you're making are, notes. Are those for you or for me? Those are for me. <laughs> <laughs> As you're saying things, I take notes so I can just, respond. I'm not supposed to be distractible, but that was kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, so, so you're making decisions from a stand like that. I'm, I'm sure I could come up with specific. Uh, well, I do want to, let me, let me respond to that. Cause one thing I imagine it requires leadership to be humble. That's what I put there. Um, and be so reflective that they can acknowledge your own limitations and mistakes and respond accordingly. Cause I'm thinking, you know, if you have a fifth plateau leader and they take a decision, which they think is the best for the people planet profit, if they're a for-profit business, you know, like the three P's, and yet they, it ends up not being so. Maybe there's a secondary consequence to the environment or you know, a, a gender or racial issue that pops up that they weren't aware of, that they actually have to be humble enough in their own decision-making to say, whoa, wait, let me stop, reflect, listen, and then adapt accordingly. Yeah, right. Totally. And, and that you know, humility is kind of the first movement that happens at a fifth plateau because you recognize that there is multiple solutions to a single problem there um there is no plan that survives contact with reality yeah. <laughs> that human nature is in itself a series of challenges that you know if we look at like that from the perspective of these challenges are meant to be conquered we usually get slapped on but if these challenges are meant to be learning opportunities and growth opportunities and that they're there for a reason to serve us in our growth then that brings great humility because now we expect the challenges. We don't fight against them. We look for the silver lining and, and you know, how, how, how do we learn from this mistake that we just made? We did the best we could, but um, no plan survives contact. Like I said, there was a second order consequences that had a negative effect and there's some blowback. Do we recoil from that? Do we, do we then, you know, play ostrich and shove our head in the ground? Are we in denial? Do we fight back or do we step, back into our fifth plateau mindset and, and take the perspective of what went wrong. Maybe it was executed from a third plateau 
maybe the uh, intention was there, but like I said, the, the third plateau shadow came out of the execution team and, you know, and it was, it was implemented with a profit mode of driving as instead of, you know, some other motive that was maybe the intention. And so there's a lot of learning that can happen and humility leads to humility in the faces of the constant crush of challenges that we all have is, is really what leads to deep learning, you know, um, that when we look at the world that way, then that's how humility becomes a practice. It's both a quality and a practice, right? We practice humility through transparency, through letting go, through practicing beginner's mind, you know, emptying our cup every day, expecting that just because I have some vast reservoir of knowledge to pull upon, then I'm going to have all the answers or that the answer is going to be obvious to me. It's not, right? It's going to be presented, the challenge will be presented to you in a new way this time. So you need to empty your cup, right? And that brings great humility. Yeah, and speaking of humility, one of the one of the many qualities I think is really interesting of, of you, and uh, brings me heartburn at times over the decade that we've been working together, <laughs> is your transparency. That. No, it's, no it's extra awesome. charge. No extra charge. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's your transparency because you you know, you'll put things out there when we're doing some of the webinars we've done over the years. I'm like, oh my god, I can't believe you said that. <laughs> <laughs> which was a lot of fun. Um, and speaking of your own humility, though, uh, t- talk to us about like your own cutting edge. Well, I haven't ruined my own reputation yet. I'm nev- never going to. <laughs> well, you're eating your own dog food, as we say, right? <laughs> uh, but talk about your own cutting edge. Like, where are you growing the most as part of a leader running an organization based on your own model? Well, just implementing this and, and staying true to it has been extraordinarily growthful. And it has brought me back to the mat in a more deeper, you know, back to the bench, back to my practices in a deeper and more um, powerful way, as well as uh, deepening the commitment to, to the growth practices with the team. There was a recognition as we began to implement these in Unbeatable that we have to do the work. We have to lead by example by doing the work. And the hardest work is the communication work. Communication is an expression of your level of development, <laughs> your emotional development and your, and your actual stage of consciousness. And so when you get called out because you're communicating from a first or second plateau, it can be very you know, like embarrassing and challenging. But how awesome it is that we have an organization or a team that has the courage, the trust and respect to call their boss out because he's operating out of a lower stage of energy. And he's temporarily, you know, descended to the first or second plateau. You know, like we recently involved in a lawsuit that really had the potential to drag me right back into survival mode. And it was an amazing practice of mine to, to use that as my object of mindfulness mm-hmm. and to constantly be letting go of any perceived perceptions of being right or wrong, of justice or injustice of, of any outcome that I don't have any control over. Right. And so, that was brought on by the organization and I'm the organization leader. So I had to, a lot of that journey was part of my journey, dark night into the soul moment for the business. 
for me as a business leader. And i um, happy to say it just settled yesterday. Yeah. And Good to hear. Quite, quite a journey. So that idea, this idea of these seven commitments, you know, writing this book was an extraordinary journey because it helped me see in my own, in our own organization, how these seven commitments played out, play out and how well we're doing and where we had some gaps and, and um, how these are like really perennial. These aren't just like a bunch of, you know, Mark Devine's latest cool little seven tips or seven habits of highly effective field teams. These are like, this is powerful juju. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I, I described this on a podcast once, you know, I was asked to write a book on Navy SEAL leadership. And I said, okay, fine, but I gotta, you gotta let me do it my way. And they said, fine. And so originally the book was gonna be the seven commitments that forge elite teams. And then I changed it to staring down the wolf because I really wanted to emphasize how it really is the emotional shadow and the emotional piece that that drags teams down or unlocks vast potential. And I really wanted to focus on that particular mountain, let's say, of our five mountains. Whereas like my other work, like eight weeks of SEAL is a physical mountain. Kakor yoga is kind of the intuitive mountain or the spiritual mountain. You know, the way of the SEAL is the mental mountain. Staring down the wolf is the emotional mountain. And um, so the book became kind of a, a um, catharsis or a cathartic moment to really understand my own development and development of our team at Unbeatable. Because I'm big on kind of eating what I call eating our own dog food, meaning like practicing what I preach. And so as as I developed the book, I found some gaps, both in my own personal behaviors and our team behaviors that led to us making some changes and to evolving even further, which is good. Yeah. So I, I look at, you know, I'm not a typical author like that book, you know, was a process that kind of came through me. I look at, look at it from a very spiritual perspective. I had an intention, you know, what I was going to say earlier, like the, the, even the seven commitments came to me after weeks, of just reflection and then a meditation. And then I wrote out in, in the meditation, I had this kind of like download or I had an insight and that, and these seven commitments came out in the order that they're in the book. And they, when you look at them, they're very, very, you know, it's very sensible how they kind of, you, they flow into each other and they, they're mutually supportive in a transcendent include manner. You can almost ideally look at it as like a hologram, you know, but, it's not linear, but it, it could be presented in a linear fashion. It'll make a lot of sense. So I didn't like just write the formulaic book that St. Martin's was okay with. I wrote the book that was going to be something that was different and unique and grounded in real spiritual as well as temporal principles of leadership and, and um, trying to align those two, right? Which I think is what the fifth plateau leader needs to thinking like like you have this material but then there's the ephemeral or spiritual and they they don't operate on the same rules and you've got to be able to be sensitive to that and to recognize that there are there's going to be 
effects if you don't try to align the material and the spiritual to be mutually supportive. That makes sense. Uh, it does. Yeah. W where can folks find Staring Down the Wolf? Well, hopefully they'll find it in their mailbox when, after they order it from Amazon. Because <laughs> <laughs> I guess they can't go to Barnes and Nobles these days. At least for no, now. <laughs> they can get it wherever books are sold. <laughs> because it was published by a major publisher, so they got it every, everywhere. Yeah. Barnes and Noble, Amazon. Uh, even in some bookstores. Are there any bookstores left open? Well, there might be, but I don't think you can go in them now. <laughs> right. Unfortunately. Strange. Yeah. But you also, you have a few websites which represent, you know, your work as well. Can you talk a little about your websites and where we can find out more about you and your work? Sure. Yeah. Go to michaeloshlink.com. <laughs> Actually, you can find out about your work there. Cause you I found out about some of my work there. <laughs> it's true. I do have a lot of links. <laughs> uh, feel fit. Of course. Okay. Very proud of that business. By the way, we're going to retire Kokoro camp. Wow. Yeah. Okay. You're the first person to hear about that. Anyways, that's uh, news for another day. We may bring it back in some other format down the road, but as a public, anybody can attend events. It's going to go away. That was an outcome of this lawsuit. Okay. We were talking about it. It's like, no, nah, just don't, don't want to. Does that include egos. too much ego? Twenty X and twenty X, twenty XL. The 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 twenty four hour event will likely go away too much like a call. Okay. But the the six and the twelve hour event, we're going to keep those. At any rate, that's a separate thing. So SealFit.com is our uh, physical mental training based upon the spe special ops model. Of, you know, so has a little bit of five mountain training in it. And then um, Unbeatable Mind. Dot com is where the business unbeatable really presents itself in the training and a lot of the work that, you know, um, we've done with our coaching program. We have certified coaches now who deliver the unbeatable mind integrated leadership development kind of model to teams and leaders. And then um, my personal website is markdivine.com. So D I V I N E. <laughs> and that's where, you know, I have, uh, I have daily, um, daily briefs that I put out that, um, you know, kind of like just a few minutes of talking about something that's interesting and um, information about, you know, speaking engagements and whatnot. It's all there. Those now, websites, I probably missed one or two, but. Well, I also want to point out too, because I just see on Instagram that uh, you're going quiet for a little, little while to give space for other voices. The thing with yeah. the George Floyd killing and the conflicts we're dealing yeah, with. Yeah, it's a really intense period in our country. You know, the racial insensitivity, you know, it appears to have been magnified, but the reality is it's just always been there. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it percolates its head up and there's some talk about it, but then it goes away. And of course, this being an election year. <laughs> that's not going to happen. And now, uh, you know, on the heels of beginning locked down, you know, people are getting agitated. And so now that agitation has exploded into the streets through this racial injustice and um, 
horrific event. And so it's exposing the soft underbelly of what has existed in this country for and around the world, even for many, many years. Yeah. And um, it's, you know, going silent on social media and whatnot is, it's just, it's one way to handle it, to let other people have a voice instead of all the experts opining on shit, you know, again. It's like, let the people who need to speak, speak. And let the people who have always spoken, shut the fuck up for once. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. I don't have the answers. And I don't want to pretend I do or be opining on something that I don't understand from my white privilege, you know, side. Mm-hmm. It's also an opportunity to pause and to look at, you know, where where is the white privilege played out in my life? And where have I been ignorant of it? Meaning I've ignored it because it wasn't obvious to me. Mm-hmm. And that's really helpful for me, right? Because I don't want to be racially insensitive. You know, and one thing I loved about the military and the SEALs was like, it didn't matter. At the same time, that could have led me into a false sense of, you know, that I'm above racial insensitivity or I don't see color. But so there's some biases that even came from that. Right, right, right. Being able, you know, being thinking that oh, I, I work with, you know, all races side by side and we love each other as warriors. I got their back. They got my back. You know, some of my best friends, my my roommate was half black, half Japanese, and, you know, mm-hmm. and buds or after buds for years. You're great. But as you know, you know, insensitivity and human beings tend to be blind to their own biases. Right? We call that boo in, in real mind, a background of obviousness. So going silent is an opportunity to examine our boo and see what hidden, what's hidden within our own uh, background of obviousness that we can expose and then help us, help me be more sensitive to the issues and to be more integrative in my approach to helping others and helping the world heal. And then we'll make me a better leader as a result, or more effectively, I should say. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I definitely appreciate that, and I appreciate your explanation. And, uh, you know, it's really interesting, because when you we first launched Unbeatable Mind, and we, we attracted a certain set of people, and this has nothing with race, but like, you know, a lot of young men who are gung-ho, and they want to be like you, right. SEAL, and then you do the whole jujitsu thing on them. Oh yeah, come here, and then I'm going to teach you how to meditate, open your heart, do some yoga, do some breathing, have more compassion, be you know world centric, right. you know. So, and and what I just heard you there do is exactly the same thing, because people are going to listen to you. Go, well, oh wait, you know, I I hold Mark up in high regards. He is reflecting on his own possible bias, his own possible boo. It's real. Maybe I need to do the same. So you just did this great jujitsu, or I know you said Yakito, so maybe it's more of a Mikido thing now. So <laughs> yeah, I, I prefer Aikido. Aikido is a little bit, a little bit um, different than jujitsu because we're trying to going with the flows, right? Yeah, we're going with the flow and also trying to diffuse the situation. Yeah, yeah. So you're using the absence of violence to diffuse a violent encounter. So it's very yin, you know, you're receiving 
but you're not, you know, I, you can, if you have to deliver mm-hmm. violence, mm-hmm. but ideally what you're going to do is take that energy and completely dissipate it. So that's the key there. Um, yeah, which is a great metaphor for, you know, what we're talking about is like, there's a lot of violence and racial issues and tensions and, you know, to go out and, and I know a lot of the protesters are really peaceful, but then the agitators come in, even thinking they're helping out and they come in with violence and then that just perpetrates violence. So force on force begets more force. And so even in that whole issue, you know, this racial um, tension and injustice is how we approach it from what plateau, right? And energy level we approach is really important we approach it from the level of force or from the level of, you know, that first or second plateau, you know, fighting for justice, you're just going to get more of the same. But if you can come from an integrated perspective and, and um, meet it with power, you know, to use like David Hawkins power versus force kind of model, you meet it with power, which has got positive energy, then you can absorb some of the negative and also do the Aikido moves to get to a better, higher order solution that has a greater perspective i think it's a it's amazing to know that you you, know, you studied a million martial arts i know you did karate and ninjutsu so i'd say like some of the harder combat oriented arts mm-hmm. and it's interesting to note that you're not doing aikido which still has self-defense applications sure but it's a nice outward reflection of the, all the inner work you're doing in terms of your choices of martial arts true yeah yeah, yeah i had to evolve to where i was even ready for Aikido. Mm. I, I studied Aikido twice in my life and I lasted a year in each one and I got impatient because I really love the hard hitting. And I still do study the scars because I really yeah. enjoy that and I think it's important. You know, I'm still a sheepdog strong warrior and leader mm-hmm. and I want to continue to maintain my readiness. Yeah. But but not with the hard mental or emotional edge of the past when I was a SEAL leader. More with a world-centric spiritual center who's got the skills of the ninja you know what i mean yeah. mm-hmm. but it's going to deploy those skills very in a very different way from that perspective of world-centric you know spiritual leader <laughs> does that right. make sense no, it does to you but someone else might be like is <laughs> <laughs> well you and i've been talking about this stuff for about a decade now so right yeah, yeah. well hey mark thank you for joining me today oh it's been a delight yeah, you don't hear many Navy SEALs use that term, delight, do you? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> delight and fun. And I point out, <laughs> it's been probably about nine years since you, you've been on my show, so it's good to have you back on. Oh, yeah. No kidding. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. We've, we've been through a lot together, Michael. I really yeah. appreciate you and, and all your support and your, um, you got a big heart and you're doing a lot of good work. So thank you. Thanks, Mark. Yeah. I appreciate that. Good to see you. You too, my friend. Hopefully we'll see each other soon in the flesh. In the flesh. From your lips to God's ears.